Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's episode. A fan favorite who has not been on in quite a while because he is a um, a bit of a peripatetic um, intellectual seeking knowledge and all sorts of. He's, he's basically wandering the earth like Cain. <laughs> and uh, I've so I've talked to him when he's been in Hong Kong. I've talked to him when he was in Washington D.C. He's currently in Montreal. He's my AEI colleague. He's a adjunct fellow at AEI, and he's a research fellow at the uh, Institute for Family Studies. Um, and as I was asking him at the beginning how I should introduce him, I said because I was so confused by what a wandering egghead he was. He was like wandering egghead work. So. Uh, wandering egghead Lyman Stone, welcome back to the remnant. It's good to be back. So, why don't we tell people who don't know what you're up to? Why are you in Montreal? I'm doing my PhD in uh, demography at um, at McGill University up here. So, uh, um, uh, that that's that's why uh, why Montreal. Uh, so, this is the, the current stage of the wanderings of the Stone family. Have you gotten into a um blind rage about the i just want to say just the outright lies of the montreal city map yet did you notice this I, I don't oh we're like north is actually west yeah 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 yeah. north is west and nothing yeah. makes sense yeah yeah yeah. it's yeah it's, when they say when they say the north side of the island they actually mean like the west and when they say the east end of the island they actually mean the northern tip the whole map is just tilted to the it's, it's, right, because they, they assume the yeah. river runs north-south when, in fact, big chunks of it run east-west. So if you're on the wrong side of right, the... It's, well, it's, the city is technically at a bend of the river. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah it's, it's absolutely wild, actually. And then, like, yeah, I mean, the, the, yes. I mean, the whole, the whole city is just a, a funny... It's place. a great city. I mean, it's a great city. I really like Montreal, but it it's weird. I was I was there with my wife once and the hotel gave us one of those little maps, you know, just like neighborhood maps with like the restaurants and stuff. And the way they tried to fix the problem was by having north in sort of, I want to say like the southeast pointing towards the southeast quadrant of the compass. You know, it was like they just took the normal compass star and turned it like 80 yep, degrees yep, or something. Yep. 
Um, and it's right. weird. Like that's one of the only other places that when they when the, like when I go up to Alaska because that's where my wife is from, and uh, all of the hours of the day make no sense. It, they're not calibrated with the normal light schedule, right? So like mm-hmm. I go out there in June and uh, there's about 23 hours of, of sunlight and you just, mm-hmm. also, it's one of those things that reminds you where you're kind of on a planet and that human environments are artificial. <laughs> um, uh, you know about China's time zones, right? No, maybe I do, but China's all one time zone. Is that right? Yeah, it's a country as as far east to west as the continental U.S., but it's all one time zone. So in the western part of the country, sunrise is at like 3 a.m. and sunset is at like 2 p.m. or something like that. Um, yeah, it's it's absurd. It's ridiculous. But everything is, is on Beijing of, time. Is it, so? Is that a is that an imperial thing like Rome, or is that like a Bismarckian thing about efficiency? I have no idea what it is. I kind of think it's wonderful though. Like I, I think maybe we should all do that. Um, and just like set, you know, work starts when the sun comes up or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing. They're all on one time zone. If you know <laughs> I this, know yeah, I, I, I did not know that. That's interesting. Um, did you know that there are six us six, I believe it's six us state capitals that are west of Los Angeles? So I'm trying to do this sort of like Android thing where I screw up your brain so I can bring you down a few IQ points so we can talk at the same level. Oh, yeah. So So, Nevada's probably west of Los Angeles, isn't it? Yeah, that's one. Sacramento. That's one of the least obvious ones. Right. So Nevada's west because it's not Las Vegas, right? The coastline in dense... It's Carson City, right? right? So it, the coastline right, right. and dense where LA is. So LA is actually pretty far east compared far to. East. So is Boise west of LA? No, but uh, but Portland, Oregon, and right, Portland, uh, Washington. I would assume, right? And then and Sacramento, then Sacramento, and then Alaska, Hawaii, and Nevada. And it, so that's your six. There right? you're, there you're. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to like, it's a little mental gymnastics to get you going, get you right, right, out. right. Okay, so why don't we um. We'll get to babies because we're both pro baby and we're and I as 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 the guy who worked for the uh, unofficial demographer at AI thirty years ago, Ben Wattenberg. Um, I'm interested in all the fertility stuff, and you're big on that these days. But why don't we start with something that you wrote recently in the New York Times because it might actually create a, a bone of contention. You argued that the that the voting age should be lowered to. I want to check my notes here. Zero. Uh, <laughs> why don't you make your case for why toddlers should yeah. be able to vote? So my argument, so the headline, or I don't know if it's the headline, but kind of the tagline is, yeah, lower the voting age to zero. But what does that really mean? I mean, obviously, a, um, uh, you know, my I have a one-month-old right now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she can't actually, like, thank you. She can't actually, like, go in and, like, fill out a thing, right? Right. So, um, you know, people would only really be able to cast their their own vote to the extent they actually have the capacity to do so, right? The, the ability to, to read and know which candidate is which, right? Otherwise they, they can't cast their own vote. They'd have to be assisted. Mm-hmm. So children who cannot cast their own vote, uh, I believe that, that they are still an important part of society. And right now what we do is we, uh, we allocate political voice based on population, right? So like the more people mm-hmm. in a district, the more, or a state, the more 
things you get. But then we don't actually allow all people to vote, right? So non-voters get their de facto votes, their voice, their representation distributed equally among all the voters. So non-citizens, for example, regions with more non-citizens get more political voice per actual voter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, places with low turnout, each voter actually has more political power. Um, and then also places with more children, each voter is actually voting for more political voices, right? Because all the children's votes are being divided. My argument is that it's actually unfair to divide the children's voice among all the voters equally. That in fact, the parents should be the the sole representatives of their children's political voice. And so while those children are too young to cast a vote unassisted, the parents should have the right to vote for them. Now, I would not do this. Some people propose something called demony voting. Mm-hmm. And demony voting basically means when a parent casts their vote, they fill out a box or check a thing or whatever that says, oh, I have three kids, so count my vote You know, extra times. I would not propose that. What mm-hmm. I would propose is, if you have two kids, you wait in the line once for your vote, once for the first kid, once for the third kid, or if you're doing absentee ballots or mail-in ballots, you fill out one ballot for you, one ballot for the next kid, one for the next. And the reason for this is because it actually raises the possibility. First of all, it recognizes that it's not that we're counting your vote three times. It's that you are voting on behalf of your children. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, it deals with uh, frivolous parent, frivolous votes, right? That by making it so that you're not just checking a box for extra votes, but you're actually casting extra votes, ensuring that only parents who are actually willing to devote a, a, a bare minimum level of thinking about what their child might benefit from will, will cast those extra votes. Um, uh, and finally, um, it raises the possibility that a parent could speak to a, a young child if they so desire and get their input and the possibility that their child, that they might respect a child's wishes to vote for something else. Um, now, you would get an issue where like, what if the child says they want to vote for X, but the parent says they should vote for Y who wins. And in principle, in this theory, I would say that the child's voice should win, but I would also argue that the child probably cannot compel, you cannot compel a person to assist you in voting. So in that case, you know, if the eight-year-old says, I want to vote for so-and-so and the parent says, no, I want to vote for so-and-so, then the parent would just say, well, you can get yourself to the polling place. Right. Um, uh, now the, the trouble would be, would schools start setting up polling places and probably in some states mm-hmm. they would and others maybe. So, you know, this would, I readily grant this would open a can of worms. So I, you'd end up getting like voting <laughs> rights cases being filed by children against their parents. And, um, and so my, my wife who I had to stipulate in the New York times article that my wife did not agree with this, this view, she was like, you will not <laughs> implicate me. I will not be implicated in this. Um, her, her concern was that this was, this would create a lot of parent child conflict. My view is that that parent-child conflict already exists. There are already political disagreements in family, um, but that basically we give absolutely no means of resolution, right? The only way for a child who doesn't have the vote to feel that their political voice is respected if they disagree with their parent is to persuade their parent, right? There's no peaceful resolution of, okay, you cast your vote, I'll cast mine, right? We don't actually supply a tool to resolve a parent-child political difference. Um, whereas I would argue that extending the franchise, 
uh, to age zero uh, does. So what it, what it does is basically it means that for young children, parents speak for them. As children get older, um, they would uh, they would naturally acquire the ability to, to cast to express their own preference, cast their own vote, um, and as they do so, um, they would acquire all all the rights of a voter. Um, uh, and while that that could lead to unfortunate litigation, I think in most cases, um, in most cases, it, the right wouldn't be exercised at all. Right? I mean, most young people don't vote. Most kids aren't going to vote. Um, and uh, and so so I. I think on the whole, it would tend to basically just mean parents with young children um, would be uh, more heavily weighted in our politics, which I think is an unalloyed good. Yeah. So I, I, I will confess, I'm actually much more sympathetic to letting parents have a number of votes of their have multiple votes for their kids than your scenario. But your last point here, um, when I read this thing, there's a certain which I'm very fond of, sort of not quite Swiftian, right? I mean, I'm not saying you don't believe what you write, but there's a certain <laughs> pl- there's a certain playfulness to it. And I kind of felt like maybe this was a Trojan horse about your actual goal here, which is to empower families and give them more clout in politics and less to do with children's rights per se, because I got to say, I'm with your wife on this. Um, I think... <laughs> I very much like having the Gemeinschaft and the Gesellschaft be very separate and intruding politics into the parental relations with their minor children, I think is a basically bad idea. I do not like the camel's nose under the tent for children's rights generally. <laughs> um, yeah. I have no problem with raising the voting age. Um, I certainly don't want to lower it. And But I am with you on this idea that that as the custodians of the next generation, um, and as the sort of, I mean, literally the, I mean, sort of the cradles of the next generation, parents should have more clout in our political culture than they do. And this is something that you, you, you talk and write about a lot in another, in a lot of respects, but, um, the idea of the, the hot mess of just on a prudential basis that comes with letting kids on a mass scale vote um, strikes me as not the best way to give the clout to the family that I was assuming was your real motivation. So obviously I'd like to see families have more clout. Yeah, I would. Um, The problem becomes, you know, we, we live in a society um, where we, we are, no one is emperor for a day, right? You, You, everything we desire, we must justify in terms of, publicly acceptable arguments. Um, so it doesn't matter why we really want something. It matters um, why a majority can really want something. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dimini voting, for all that it's it's kind of appealing in its simplicity, first of all, I do think it's fundamentally unjust mm-hmm. um, to simply count a person's votes more times, um, particularly without the possibility you know, there can be within family disagreement. And for, frankly, um, one of the things I, I point out is that the, the 18 voting age is is kind of weird. Like, there's nothing that happens at 18, right? You could argue for raising it. You could argue for lowering it. Um, but the idea that, that, that a parent's vote should count twice if they have a 17-year-old and once if they have a 19-year-old, um, I think this is preposterous. There, there's no meaningful cognitive difference in that child, in that person between 17 and 19. Um, you could argue there's a deterioration, in fact. Um, 
But um, so yes, I want to see families get more clout, but it has to occur in a way that actually has some uh, procedural justice to it. Mm-hmm. That is not just, I want families to count for more. So I'm literally just going to count their ballots multiple times. There's nothing procedurally just in that besides I want it. Right. So what is a procedurally reasonable? What is a, what is a way to achieve this goal that, and also I think this, this rational necessity of a civilized society, which is that uh, the interests of the next generation are explicitly represented by the people who are their interest representers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how do you achieve that that goal in a way that is also procedurally just and that is is politically justifiable? And the rights of children is a useful framework for that. Um, so child voting um, is a useful framework for that. Um, now lowering it to fourteen or thirteen, which is what a lot of people on the left want, um, is obviously not what I'm what I'm arguing for because what you're doing there is you're basically saying let a bunch of immature kids who are going to be swept along by a fad vote, but don't actually give parents any ability to represent the interests of their families. Um, so what I would argue, uh, is that my proposal, while it, while it, yes, it's, it opens the door for a lot of stuff that's kind of weird, maybe icky, um, is the only way. And I do mean the only way to Mm. actually give parents the clout that I think we're agreed is almost necessary for them to have in order to have like kind of a long run sustainable society, um, in a way that's also facially just, um, that is not, um, stripping anyone of rights that are already widely recognized and is only extending rights in ways that is, that is widely recognized. Now, in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the family, I, w- I would argue, first of all, that, while it's it's lovely to think that we can keep external politics out of the family, um, I think that's that's self delusion. Um, there are already politics within the family. Um, we should make them explicit. Um, that is, we should provide people with formal institutions to resolve political disagreements. And this is basic conservatism, right? Um, that is, that humans are messed up. They are not trustworthy custodians of of all their, um, uh, they, they are not just like idealized self-regulating people who can just like choose morality, right? They're depraved. They need cultural institutions. They need norms. They need frameworks. They need communities. They, they need these things to supply, uh, meaning structure order in life. The state is one of those things, but also, you know, the, the institution, the family, all these things. But what that tells us is when we see something like you know, parent-child political differences, we should not just say, well, they'll find a way to resolve it. Because usually what, because what, what's actually happening is we're giving the parent all of the political power. So they're not finding a way to resolve it. We're just choosing a kind of resolution. Um, whereas, and, and the, the kind of resolution is that the parent gets all the political power, but also parental voices are systematically underweighted. Whereas I would say we should appropriately weight the parent's voice even if it means um, that we uh, that we risk formalizing what's currently um, an informal tension within families. Yeah. No. I, I just <clears throat> look. We both we share some uh, unorthodox views. We're both members <laughs> for, for decades now of the Expand the House of Representatives Club. Yeah. But 
um, on this one, I just I I I, I think <laughs> the too technical far term there. for this is just no. It's not that it's too out there. I just think it's too wrong. I mean, I personally do want do not want to see political ad campaigns aimed over the heads of parents at kids to get them to sort of define themselves. I mean, like I'm one of these people who really pretty passionately believes that childhood should be about childhood for as long as is reasonably possible. See, there and, we disagree. I want to abolish childhood. Just get rid okay, of it. Well, well, I mean, we had that, you know, that was, that was a 19th century thing is like, we dressed them up like little grownups and then they, yep. you know, they sent them yep. to the factory as quick as we could. And I, I get that, but that's not me. And I don't, I, I like, keep, you know, I'm a, I'm a haven in the heartless world kind of guy. I like the idea of keeping the family um, as immune from politicization as possible for as long as possible. Not not to the point where it starts to stifle a kid's proper development as a human being, but um, like having the DCCC targeting, you know, running ads on Elmo or whatever, I just think would not be good for America and not so be good for the I family. I think there wouldn't be ads on Elmo. Why? Because all the kids watching Elmo are... Well, definitionally, they're just becoming literate, which means they mm -hmm. can't they can't read to cast their own vote. So the parent would be making that choice. So it would be ads pitched to parents during Elmo, um, yep. which might be valuable political education for parents. Um, but you make also you make another assertion in your piece where you make these comparisons. This is why I thought there was something sort of playful and swifting about it. You make these comparisons about like uh, people who are small children to disabled people, right? And that we think mm -hmm. discriminating against disabled people who can't vote bad literacy tests are bad and all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, for all intents and purposes, and I am I, sure your daughter is a brilliant top 99th percentile to 100th percentile in everything, but she's one month old, you said, hey. right? She hey. is no different. She's probably not 99th cognitively than someone essentially in a coma and it comes to voting issues right oh sure right now yeah, i agree right so your argument is not f your your comparison of disabled people and or 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 mentally handicapped whatever the correct nomenclature is these days mm -hmm. uh to babies doesn't quite work because the guy in the hospital doesn't get someone doesn't have a power doesn't give the power of attorney to somebody else to vote for them do they uh, it depends on if they're literally in a coma. No, mm -hmm. they have to have some kind of ability to indicate. So they legally, they don't have to, they don't have to understand a preference. They just have to be able to indicate a preference. So, mm -hmm. you know, if they can move a hand to randomly land on a candidate, randomly choosing is, is perfectly acceptable. You know, we don't require that people make a rational choice, just that they, they be able to make some kind of differentiation and be aware that they are differentiating something. So, um, like they have to be awake. Right. Um, so, you know, my daughter, my one month old, she can differentiate between when she's awake and when she's asleep, she can differentiate between, uh, when she's hungry when she's not. Mm -hmm. So she is capable of making some differentiations. So she is different from a person in a coma in that way. That is, she responds to stimuli. And she'd like um, the candidate with a bunny. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but, but so the point is, my point is that obviously I'm expecting parents to represent right. their children's interests, right? Um, now, uh, so 
I mean, yes, it it it, it presumes that we are going to uh, extend that we believe that the right to vote should be highly or should be broadly extensive. Now, there is a pretty cogent rebuttal to my piece that some conservatives have made, which I respect the consistency of it, but it's, it's, and I think it is the most cogent rebuttal. Um, but, uh, but I think it has absolutely no political, uh, uh, constituency, which is actually, we should have IQ tests to vote. Mm. Um, that is that, that, uh, or a related argument, well, you know, the only reason we extend the franchise to disabled people is because, uh, it, it's like an exception to our general rule of competence right? We do it because we have to, because otherwise it'd be icky, right? It'd be gross not to do this. So there's not really any, any like rational justification other than it's unpalatable. Um, right. So the argument is that, um, so I make all these arguments about, you know, comparing to other groups, there's the disabled, the handicapped, um, the elderly, um, all these different things. Um, uh, some other countries already allow proxy voting, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm basically what I'm arguing for is proxy voting for kids. Yeah. Um, so, so I, uh, I, yeah, I don't think I mean, I, like I, I've been in these fights for a very long time about voting. I am not a voting fetishist. Um, the stuff I love about liberal democracies, if I had to rank them, a lot of the most undemocratic or a-democratic or non-democratic things are the things I like best about liberal democracies, like the First Amendment, you know, the Fourth Amendment, uh, all that kind of stuff. This is not to say I don't like democracy. I do like democracy. Sure. No, and, I, I understand. Um, yeah, but I've never made I have never made the argument for IQ tests in part because some of the smartest people I know vote the dumbest, um, and uh, this whole sort of. Uh, uh, what's his name? Sure, um, but it doesn't have to be a, an IQ test. You know, basically you argue for qualified voting. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not saying you like, argue. What for about that, the citizenship test a, a that rebuttal, an immigrant has a to take? A rebuttal, a rebuttal that I that I hear is basically qualified voting. Mm-hmm. Um, that is to be able to vote, you should have to have some kind of qualification that you recertify periodically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's an interesting argument, and there's a philosophical case for it. Um, but it's a non-starter uh, politically. And, I agree. So I understand that. So if, if your rebuttal is actually we should reform the system by stripping the vote from tens of millions of people. Okay. Go on. I get it. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but it won't. It, no. Right, and also right. It's like, a non-starter. I, I I'm not even saying I support that, but just like it, it's DOA. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested I, I, I in making arguments for things that although they may be crazy on their face – you can actually see a pathway where it could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on that, and, and I should say on the childhood thing, I, I do understand the, the desire to protect childhood, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to arguments like those made by like Ben Sass in one of, one of his recent books, I forget which one, that basically we have, we have like 30-year-old children populating our country. Um, mm-hmm. And that I believe it, it it begins in really the invention the invention of this idyllic childhood, and then it becomes you know adolescence, and then it becomes the you know the early adult, the young adult, mm-hmm. um, and you you just get this extension of 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 immaturity. Um, and so I think while while I'm not going to argue the child labor laws are ruining this country, um, I'm not going to go like <laughs> fully Ron Swanson on this. I do think that injecting serious deliberation about social futures 
into life at an earlier age is a good thing. Um, and I think it is part of what, what conservatives should be able to get behind, which is trying to, um, trying to reverse this, this immaturity in society, this, this, um, this, uh, extended adolescence, right. That we yeah, should with be trying that. to push adulthood younger. We should be trying to get our young kids accepting adult responsibilities earlier. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. I think this is a real problem among, among elites. I could go on about this stuff and I'm I, I, I just very tempted to say, you know, do you know about the Soupy Sales scandal in the 1950s? So Soupy Sales no, was a child, hugely popular uh, tele, child television star. He wasn't a child. He was a grown up, funny guy, whatever. And one time, just as a joke, he said, boys and girls, tonight I want you when your parents are asleep to sneak into their room and go into their wallets and send me the money inside and like large numbers of american kids did this and it was like a huge scandal that's the kind of thing that i would worry about on the political side let's move on to some to to more of a point of agreement um uh you one of your big um ballywicks these days is that um uh you are uh, a pronatalist um and so am i and um um but there are many rooms in the mansion of pronatalism and some <laughs> of the rooms are kind of icky i think we can agree um yep so why don't, why don't you explain what, what the different camps of pronatalism are and what yeah. kind you are and why so i actually have a spreadsheet of this that i send to journalists where i'm like <laughs> here's like the nine different types of pronatalism and here's like you know how they deal with different things and their kind of philosophical bases but broadly speaking um uh there are um uh pronatalism just we should level set means yeah, so being in favor of more more births more babies pronatalism means being in favor of more babies now there's a strong pronatalism and a weak pronatalism the strong pronatalism is everyone should always have more babies okay mm -hmm. um so this is like your like quiverful movement like super trad catholic situation like don't use birth control. Nobody should time plan, whatever. That's a rare opinion. Um, and it's, it's not my view, although I do, you know, I do value large families. I want to have a large family. Um, I do think people should generally have more kids, but, but you know, there, there are countervailing factors. The strong pronatalist view that just like churn out the babies, everybody should have babies all the time. It's fairly rare. Doesn't really have a, a political constituency is not my main, uh, interest. So then we're talking about weak pronatalism, which is um, people should in general have more kids in our current social situation. Um, there might be some social situation where that wouldn't be true. Okay. Now we might disagree about what that situation is. Um, but we, you know, if you can imagine a situation where you think an individual should not try to conceive a child, you are some variety of quote weak pronatalist. So if you mm -hmm. think, well, people should wait to have kids until they finish their education, okay, you're you're in some version of not quite totally strong pronatalism, okay? Um, so so, this is so you would call the, um, the so, success sequence crowd weak pronatalists? To the extent they're pronatalist at all, they are weak pronatalists. Okay, sure. Many of them are right, fairly okay. explicitly anti-natalist. They're not all. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. Brad Wilcox, who's, you know, close colleague love, he's, you know, he's definitely 
in the pronatal camp, um, but also kind of the success thing, right? So, so it's a version of a kind of weak pronatalism. Um, mm-hmm. uh, okay. So we're talking about weak pronatalisms where we all recognize there's some situation where planning or limitation is reasonable, but, um, okay. But we still think right now we should have more kids. So then we get into the question of, of, um, uh, why should we have more kids? And there's, there's three camps broadly. Um, I would call them communitarian, liberal, um, or, uh, individualist. Okay. So the communitarian camp basically says we need children because there is some community that needs to be perpetuated. That needs to be continued. That Mm -hmm. there is, there is a project, an intergenerational project worth continuing. Okay. So there's a lot of versions of this. One of this is I want to give mama a grandchild, right? Okay. That's communitarian pronatalism. I want to have a child so that my family lineage continues so that my mom can have a grandchild so that my husband and I can have something to pour our love into, right? Or my wife and I. Um, So this kind of uh, project continuity is a kind of pronatalism. In in its political form, this becomes uh, the nation needs to be continued. We need to continue the American project or have babies, or it becomes um, our religious community needs to be perpetuated, so have babies. It can also become um, the Aryan race needs to be continued, so have Aryan babies. So these all have very different feelings to us, right? So like, um, I want to give grandma a grandbaby, feels warm and fuzzy, right? Nobody has an objection to that, really. Um you know, it's, it's good for the nation to be, you know, we value our nation. So it's good for the nation to be continued. So have babies, you know, it might not be persuasive, but it doesn't necessarily feel gross. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, these people want to have more children so that their religious community continues to grow. It might feel strange and foreign sometimes. It's not necessarily like gross, have a baby because Aryans are a superior people group who must, you know, become more numerous. That one feels gross. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, there's, there's, there's within communitarian pronatalism, there's kind of broadly acceptable versions and unacceptable versions. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have liberal pronatalism. Liberal pronatalism says um, there's, it, there's not a specific project or community to be continued, but there are benefits to current people of, of more babies being born. So if we don't have enough babies, the age structure of the population will become unbalanced. We won't be able to finance entitlements. This will be a problem. Or if we don't have enough babies, population growth will slow down. That leads to declining, declining rates of innovation and entrepreneurship, um, increasing rates of concentration of wealth. This will create inequality and economic immobility and, um, and lower growth. That's bad for everyone. We should have more babies. Okay. Um, these, these are the kinds of arguments. You can also get uh, included in liberal pronatalism would be something like uh, Korea's situation, which is... Um, uh, a war requiring significant manpower is a plausible risk in the future. Um, we need to be able to maintain a certain manpower in our military, have babies. Um, that was also interwar France's situation in interwar mm-hmm. Germany um, and Italy and basically all of Europe. Um, so uh, these are ver- varieties of liberal pronatalism, which is basically um, uh, you should have uh, children, not because there's some community to perpetuate uh, per se, but because it has uh, it has um, uh, ancillary utilitarian benefits. benefits. Yeah. yeah, ancillary yeah. benefits. Okay. The third reason is individual pronatalism, which is um, you should have more babies because you personally want them. Um, 
That is, you already have the desire. You're not fulfilling it for some reason. Um, we should raise the birth rate because it will be nearer what people say they truly, what people truly want. Um, this is where I locate myself. Um, now you can get into why do people truly want those kids? How do we know they truly want them? Whatever. But my argument is the best reason to be pronatalist is not, or, or in a political sense, maybe in a private sense, but in a political sense, the best argument for pronatalism is not, you know, have one for the Aryan race or have one for the country or have one for the GDP or have one for military recruitment. It's have one because you know, you really want to, mm. um, uh, and then if, if we use that as our presupposition, what we do is instead of saying, how do we just increase birth rates? We say, what kind of barriers are preventing people from having these children that, that they, that they say they want. Um, and so it, it becomes basically an exercise in removing barriers to people's free choices rather than just like, how do we engineer a birth rate increase? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I mean, I, I'm generally with you in part because i think the individual pronatalism as a matter of policy is the most classically liberal reason for it as well which is that absolutely it's not it's not my business to question what your reasons for wanting more babies are um right. but you have a right to want to pursue more babies and there are all sorts of knock-on public goods that come from you having more mm -hmm. babies and so we should make it easier for you to have more babies i mean i we have a policy at the dispatch, you know, we, we basically say babies are good. And then we try our best to make it as easy as possible for people at the dispatch to have babies because babies are good. And right. I'm not going to get into people's business about why they want to have more babies, but if they want to have more babies, we right. like babies, we support it. And, um, the, the, pro, I, I do not like a lot of the pronatalist arguments that reduce babies into as economic inputs right what i like about the position of babies are good it's sort of like you know the founding fathers did this brilliant thing when they did the declaration of independence is they kind of punted on the question of god they just said look it's self-evident all men are created <laughs> equal let's move on you know let's not argue about it i don't have to show you my homework or my math and if you just start from the proposition that a culture is a happier place if it has more babies, that people are happier if they have more babies, the society is more vibrant, more diverse, more interesting, um, all sorts of things if they have more babies. Um, the future looks brighter if you have more babies, mm -hmm. but you don't have to make those arguments. It's just babies are good and, um, and yeah, lack so of babies is I bad. Think, I think this is, um, uh, this is, um, I mean, I obviously agree. I mean, in my personal life, I'm a communitarian pronatalist. Like I want to have mm -hmm. babies because I participating in these projects that I think are good. And so because the projects are good, the babies are good. Um, mm -hmm. but in my, in my political life, I'm, I'm an individualist pronatalist. So, um, you're open to the idea that because, Jews can make the because, same argument about Jews right, and that doesn't bother right. you. Right. And I'm yeah, also open to the argument, yeah. but I'm also the individual's pronatalist argument also has, it's a two edged sword. It also says I'm open to the possibility that some people might not want babies. Sure. To them, babies might be bad and that's their business right now. If, if the desired fertility rate fell so low that it was problematic for society, maybe I would metamorph into some kind of liberal pronatalist. And so actually a lot of the things you said there, like, um, you know, having more babies is, 
creates a society of more joy and happiness. Like I agree, but that's actually a kind of liberal pronatalist argument, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The individualist pronatalist argument would say, even if people's desires led to a society of misery and despair, right, sure. they would be worth doing. Now I'm hesitant to go like quite that far. Um, however, I do think there's a, there's a kind of practicality judgment. If people say they only want one child each, it hardly matters how much government firepower you throw at it in terms of pronatal policy. Right. Like, like maybe that's a really sad thing that I hate, but like, there's probably not a lot you can do at that point besides trying to work on the cultural foundations of that. But that, that might not be as malleable a problem for government. So like China's in this situation right now in, in China, average desired fertility is like 1.6 and they, and so they're like, oh, people don't even want the Chinese people to perpetuate themselves. Like the average Chinese person would desire the Chinese ethnicity to shrink as mm -hmm. a share of global population, right? Because they desire less than two children. Um, uh, so this is, this is strange, right? There's very few places in the world where that's, where that's true. Um, so, um, so liberal or individualist pronatalism does get into a weird place when you get the rare case of very low fertility preferences. Mm -hmm. um, but even in like Japan, a place with very low fertility or Korea, average fertility desires are, are around or above two. So it's mm -hmm. not like all low fertility places have low fertility desires. Um, low fertility desires are pretty rare. And there's no reason to think that like the U.S. is like anywhere imminently close to having fertility desires of like 1.6. Like at most recent survey, they were like 2.3, 2.4. Right. And so we should tell people like, I mean, it's been a long time since I did this stuff, but given current child infant mortality rates and life expectancies and fertility, and all this stuff, a replacement rate, uh, a TFR total fertility rate is about 2.1. We peg it to that, right? Like sure. you yeah. replace the population at 2.1 or something like that. But historically you had to have much, higher, much higher because so many kids died. Right. Um, and so yeah, many women so died. There, in there, there are even countries today where the, the, the adjusted replacement rate that is after you count for like sex ratio at birth and survival and, um, and all these things, the adjusted replacement rate is something like 3.5. Yeah. So, um, uh, that, yeah, I mean, the, it, it isn't always 2.2.07 or whatever. Um, yeah. and so like this, this gets to like when people, people sometimes look at the past and like, Oh yeah, people used to have eight kids. But once you account for like what share of them survived to old enough to have their own kids, mm -hmm. you get to like, you know, 2.3 yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a fascinating point. I heard, heard you make it someplace else a while ago. And, um, you know, and having written this book where I went through like mortality rates and infant mm -hmm. mortality, it, it's, it's kind of horrifying to realize you have to turn out that many kids just to hit your desired number of ones yep. who can make it to the yep. proper age. But I, I, I just want to clarify one thing. When I was making these points about where you would, what you would call liberal pronatalist, I come from the point of view that sees classical liberalism, not as a neutral. I don't think liberal classical liberalism is value neutral. I think the value neutrality is an objective good, right? And so like the right to face your accuser in court, that is a neutral process, but it is also morally good. And having a society where people are allowed to worship the way they want, even if I disagree with them or have the number of kids the way they want, um, uh, is 
it may be procedurally neutral in some circumstances, but it's also morally right. preferable to the alternatives. Um, right. So that that's the argument in the individualist pronatalism, right? Is that people fulfilling their preferences is morally good in some sense, right. that people having the freedom to flourish in that way. Um, let's talk about China for a second, because you were in, in Hong Kong, which is increasingly more part of China than um, I would like mm -hmm. it to be. Um, you know, one of my obsessions um, is this willful blindness. And, you know, I, you know, I'm sort of into the evolutionary psychology of all of this stuff. This John Tooby has this thing about the coalition instinct that if you, uh, that a lot of the things that we get worked up uh, about morally really are just essentially uh, ways to differentiate my tribe from your tribe. And so if you don't have skin in the game, certain moral sins are not, they don't bother you anymore because some tribe is just strangers. And so, for example, we talk a lot in this country, even these days, about the evils of Jim Crow and all of that. And meanwhile, in China, they have essentially, the Han Chinese have a real Jim Crow system, right? Where they are preferencing one race over other races or one ethnicity over other ethnicities. It's more difficult to get into good schools if you're not Han Chinese. You can go down, you know, I mean, Han supremacy is more of a real doctrine than white supremacy is outside of some 4chan chat rooms in the United States. And yet it is very difficult to get anybody to give a rat's ass about any of that. Um, where, you know, I'm not sure how to put this in the form of a question, you know, like how, and having lived in Hong Kong the way you did, I mean, like, what is the, pro and, you know, we now see the genocide with the Uyghurs and what, or at least the cultural genocide of the Uyghurs. Some people are getting a little too promiscuous with, the term genocide, but maybe not. Um, how do you set your terminology about how to talk about China in a re morally realistic way these days? Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, so I'm a bit of an extremist on this. Um, that is, I, I'm not, um, I don't think there is, uh, any benefit in, um, when Churchill says that part of the greatest strength of the of the democratic societies is the clarity of of moral difference between them and the fascist states during World War II, um, I think that that's 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 true. That in fact, it's it's actually very important to be very clear about how different we are, um, and that this is part of our strength is uh, is when we can clearly articulate difference. And I think that. Um, when we think about China today, uh, we should be thinking of it um, as very much like Germany in the 1930s, mm -hmm. um, maybe the early 30s. Sure. Um, but uh, I mean, the expansionist aims are there. They're very public. The military buildup is there. The ethnic minority being, you know, not quite genocided yet. Mm -hmm. is there, although maybe they are being, maybe it is genocide. Maybe it's not quite genocide. Um, which like when your defense is like, it's not quite genocide. Right. Okay. Or it only, um, it only checks off seven of the 10 requirements for genocide. Right, You're like, right. okay, well that's not, a not technically, <laughs> not technically genocide. Yeah. yeah. This is not technically. Yeah. But um, I, mean, I think the I charge mean, of I, cultural I, genocide I'm, is I'm, real. I mean, that's, that's totally provable. So I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, open to, I tend to think that the genocide claim is reasonable. Um, mm -hmm. however, 
it rests very strongly not on what is happening to the Uyghurs, but what is happening to the Han Chinese. Um, mm. And this is important. So you said they have like this Jim Crow system. It's important to understand though that China is not Jim Crow in 1950. Mm. China is Jim Crow in 1890. That is, um, ethnic minorities under Maoism, they were exempted from a lot of the fertility control policies. They got affirmative action pretty extensively. They mm. were actually like China, communist China's ethnic minority policy, except for to some extent Tibet, um, where where there were separatist concerns, was by and large considered fair, like highly progressive by the wider mm-hmm. world. Um, so an argument many Han Chinese will make is that, you know, the fertility suppression of Uyghurs can't be genocide because this was done to all Han, Han Chinese people under the one child policy. Mm-hmm. Um, my disagreement with that would be, look, I would agree with you. If the ethnic minority suppression was happening simultaneous with Han Chinese suppression, but what we've actually seen is the Chinese government has pivoted to becoming extremely pro-natalist for Han Chinese. Mm-hmm. You know, urbanized Han Chinese people with hukou in their city can have three kids. Um, you know, everybody can have three kids now, pretty much. Um, but you know, they're increasing maternity leave, they're increasing cash benefits, all this stuff in Eastern Chinese cities, right? They do it via local governments, not the central government. And because it's via local governments, they can ensure that it only happens in Han or to some extent Manchu uh, majority mm-hmm. communities. Um, so if you look at changes in birth rates in China over the last 20 years, um, the places with the highest Han and Manchu population shares have seen birth rate increases, whereas the places with the highest minority shares have seen birth rate decreases. Mm-hmm. So I would argue um, what makes it genocide is not just that they're you know, repressing fertility of Uyghur people. Um, it's that Uyghur children are being kidnapped and placed in you know, Han educational and family environments where they'll be, forget their, their background. Um, large numbers of Uyghurs are being interned and dying in internment. Now it's not like Holocaust death camps, but, uh, it's very difficult to imagine that the mortality rate in those, those prisons is, uh, is, is similar or lower than, than in Xinjiang writ large. Um, even as reproduction is being systematically suppressed, non mm-hmm. non consensually at the same time that's actually being promoted elsewhere so it is clearly an ethnic targeting where the elimination of the the physical elimination of the of the population group is plausible yeah, um, I mean, and physical elimination is is a requirement for it to be legal genocide it can't only be cultural elimination but because they are suppressing fertility rates considerably below 2 mm-hmm. physical elimination is in fact highly likely. Um, so I would argue it can be genocide regardless, given China's explicit expansionist aims. I think thinking about it as an analog for 1930s Germany is pretty reasonable. And with that in mind, we, we, we need to, um, we need to be preparing for the 1940s. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the analogy just since we're in this place, um, also works, you know, I mean, coincident with the with the the cultural genocidal stuff and the suppression of the minorities and and all the stuff you described there's also a burgeoning eugenics you know uh oh, yeah. drive 
and in China and and like real eugenics. I mean, so many people they're, don't you know know what eugenics official, are. But, you know. Their official population policy says that a goal is to use scientific research and development to improve the quality of the population stock. That's eugenics. That's, that's the official. <laughs> like that's that's the goal. Yeah. Um, now they. They, you know, also the first human gene editing happened in China. Now the researcher who did it promptly disappeared. Um, and he was, you know, the, he was condemned. The research was destroyed, all this stuff. Um, but, uh, you got like cats out of the bag, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's going to happen more there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that's, what's happening. You know, it, it's, it's, it is explicit eugenics. And let's just, just change change subjects one last time if we can um not the first time you were on here i think it was the second when you were when you were doing it from hong kong and you had a sleeping baby in the background um you were the first person this is very early in the pandemic and you were the first person i saw to make the excess deaths point about how mm-hmm. covid deaths covid cases these numbers they're going to vary all over the place it's hard to know blah 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 but if you look at the excess deaths like COVID's killing people, you know, and we can talk about whether they're dying from COVID or they're dying with COVID or they're dying from the knock-on problems that come with the pandemic and all the rest. Um, why don't you sort of, I recently had Edward Carr, who's the deputy editor of The Economist and runs their, um, their COVID tracking for the entire world. And, and he made a very strong case about why they follow excess deaths because it gives you the best, most reliable right. sort of margin for error of understanding the big picture kind of thing. Um, and yeah. the reason why I wanted him on was to make the case that I think a lot of the way we talk about COVID in the United States is extremely parochial. We think it's just an America problem, an America response, that we had the worst mm-hmm. pandemic response or the best pandemic response. We've, we've had neither. <laughs> um, what, you know, Looking back, what are the, like some of the lessons learned that you have from this? Or what are the big sort of you know, the, the big takeaways that you have from our experience from all this and, and the sort of a demographic or, you know, uh, a, a Lyman stone kind of perspective. <laughs> Cause I never know what it's going to be. <laughs> uh, man. Uh, my, so many of those. Um, one of the big surprises to me is that, um, you can, you can kill a million Americans and it's like not politically that important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that sounds insane, but like, you know, the election was not decided by COVID, you know, like maybe it tweaked a few votes here or there, but, um, but at the end of the day, like it was, you know, partisans voted for partisans. Um, so the big shock to me is like, you can have a massive, a massive spike in mortality, just an absolutely massive one, an epochal increase in death and society just kind of shrugs. Um, and yeah, I mean, we did all these policies, these things, but like we did those policies, you know, we, we did things to try and reduce deaths, but first of all, I would argue that we didn't actually, we actually did not do things to reduce deaths. We often did things to appear to be doing things. Um, the policies that would have actually reduced deaths the most, we often didn't do. And the policies we did do often were not the ones likely to reduce deaths. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, my argument is that like, 
what we showed is that, and, and if I were a great power considering challenging America, I would take note that America will shed a million people and just continue having politics as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, that like, now you could say, well, a lot of them were old, but like, okay, so converted into life years, like how many fighting age males would it take before America noticed in terms of casual? Now, Iraq, you can think, oh, well, that shows we really don't have casualty tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't U.S. casualties that broke support for the war in Iraq, right? It was, it was basically like public relations generally, right? The war had gone mm-hmm. on like 20 or 10 years or something. Um, so, you know, you could argue time breaks public will. Um, but, uh, but, um, it seems to me the casualty tolerance in Western societies was far higher than anyone expected. Um, that is that losing massive numbers of people did not create, you know, dramatic political changes or huge coalitions for preventive measures or something like that. Um, but don't you think uh, it would have, if if it was, don't you think it would have if it was like the Spanish flu and it was disproportionately hitting kids? Don't you think there would have been a pretty serious different cultural response? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, yes, in the sense, you know, I think you can basically weight this by life years, like how many life years were lost. So, mm-hmm. you know, losing a million kids would be different than losing a million old people. Um, but you know, how many how many prime age people would be equivalent? So, you know, you might think maybe 50,000. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a hundred thousand, but you can also look at something like the opioid crisis as something that is killing lots of prime age people. And like, mm-hmm. it's kind of a political nothing burger, mm-hmm. which is terrible, right? It should be a big deal, but it's not like we have national campaigns running on dealing with the opioid crisis. Right. Um, we barely even have like local County campaigns running on that. Um, now I think part of this, is because people feel like these are things beyond political control. Um, but I think it's important to remember that Iraq and Afghanistan were clearly wars that were within political control, right? We chose to get into them. We can choose to get out. But if, if another power attacked a U.S. ally, like say Estonia (laughs) or Taiwan Mm -hmm. or Korea, um, that's not so much a war of choice. Taiwan is a little fuzzy, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, a contest over the Senkaku Islands is not a war of choice. We are, we are le- like we're bound into that one. If mm-hmm. if China tries to go for it with Japan, um, we're committed. We already do war drills on how to retake them. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, um, uh, we do extra um, uh, exercises on where we drill basically retaking those islands. Um, so um, you know, to me, it's suggestive that value like valuation on preventing lost life is perhaps not as high in the western countries as one might think in contra you can look at say china or a lot of the asian countries and you can see an extraordinary paranoia that any covid death is unacceptable um and i think this is partly because there's a sense that um, that there's a legitimacy issue in some cases. There's also, you know, probably just cultural differences generally related to things like risk tolerance and casualty tolerance. Um, uh, and then, and then, um, uh, and so I think that that's kind of eye opening. Um, you know, I don't think anybody would have guessed that, um, that the government of the people's Republic of China 
would see it as a crisis level threat to their, their legitimacy to have, you know, 1% excess death rates from mm-hmm. COVID or from anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the general assumption would have been that they'll just let lots of people like that authoritarian or dreams would just kind of shake it off. Um, that was sort of Mao's position about nuclear war, right? Mao was like, we can afford to lose 60 right. million people. Yeah. Right. But it seems like there's been a huge change in China where yeah. any casualty is unacceptable. And so I think that that, and you know, you see this as well in Russia where like Putin's always trying to hide how many casualties they've suffered in like Syria or any other conflict um, because there's huge PR problems with war casualties in Russia. And I'd argue mm-hmm. that what this is telling you is that there's actually probably, um, there's probably less appetite for absorbing casualties in a lot of the Asian or authoritarian countries of the world than, than there is in some of the Western democracies. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I got to think about that. That's really interesting. The only place I would push back a little, and I think it was just you phrasing it a little off. I do think that the, that the pandemic was a big political issue in 2020. Just the, ex, the just the deaths weren't right. And so it's a little different thing. It was like lockdowns sure, yeah, and yeah, what yeah, happens yeah. to the economy was, and that kind of thing. Right. But right. Yeah. So, so that, there, there were political issues, but it wasn't that the casualty count was unacceptably right, high. Right. Right. right? That's that it's that the GDP count was unacceptably high. <laughs> right. Right. No, exactly. And then, and then that's what I was taking to be your larger point. I just wanted to clarify that. But so like I, we've never talked about abortion. I assume that you are pro-life to one extent or another, yes. uh, just given your commitments. And um, one of the things that has depressed me greatly, talking about the politi- the sort of the cultural, what has been revealed by the pandemic, and this is sort of a hobby horse of mine, is that you know I grew up, I'm older than you, I grew up with a conservative movement that worked very, very hard to make scientifically rigorous, morally and philosophically sound arguments for the pro-life position. And um, I came of age professionally at National Review with people like Ramesh and others who work very, very hard on this stuff. And one of the, you know, this the flashpoint political issues of my former years was the Terry Schiavo episode where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there was a huge argument about end-of-life care and all these kinds of things. And some of my heroes on the socially conservative right, who are oh, who are always much more leaned in to pro-life stuff than I was. It's never been a primary thing for me, um, even though I'm, you know that's not the point. It's just it's not been my major issue in any way. But for a lot of people who for whom it was a major issue, they t- made this you know seamless garment of life. We value all life, mm-hmm. you know, including that's why we're against euthanasia. That's why we're against all things, and the shocking number of these pro-lifers, I don't want to get into naming names, um, mm-hmm. who were not just dismissive. All life matters until it's COVID. Until it's COVID. There were people who were just, you know, trivializing the deaths. Yeah. Saying, oh, well, look at that. This was fat people. Who cares? Or, you know, um, yep. you know, they were sick from other things, so why is it a big deal? And why do we have to change our life and our way of life? And why are we shutting down and giving in to fear and all that kind of stuff? And I'm not saying that the policies they were opposing were the right policies, but rhetorically, the concession that these were, what was it? The, uh, the, the Germans in the 1930s, the phrase they used, which was, you know, uh, useless bread gobblers or life unworthy of life. There was a certain right. amount of that in the rhetoric from people who had invested an enormous amount in those arguments in the pro-life side. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if it's going to 
come at a cost in the future, but um, I kind of think it, there's going to be a long tail to some of that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Um, that was, I mean, it's been pretty eye opening to me. <laughs> um, how many, uh, um, uh, the, the conditionality with which life appears to be valuable. Um, you know, through, I mean, I've been pretty hawkish on COVID since the beginning, arguing for pretty stringent, mm -hmm. uh, NPIs. Um, at the same time, the interventions I favored were different than the ones we got. Um, I wanted, uh, you know, centralized quarantine options and strict, uh, travel rules. Instead, we got arbitrary, capricious, and wide-ranging lockdowns that did nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, um, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that a lot of these policies we enacted were worthless, that they, they accomplished nothing. Um, I think that's, that's true on many fronts. Um, uh, but I agree that it is incredible the extent to which people on the right did not argue these things are unfounded, worthless, not scientifically supportable, whatever, but instead argued, let her rip. It's only going to be people who had it coming. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's only people who, um, um, uh, you know, they had comorbidities, right? And it's like, hold on, like, like half the population of the country has like high cholesterol. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like this is like everyone has comorbidities. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's concerning to me. Um, and you know, a little bit of self-criticism on the right, you know, I, I will say like talking about pronatalism, um, you know, I argue for pronatalism and then inevitably anytime I write about this, you do get people on the right saying, well, we don't want to do be too pronatalist because then black people will have kids mm -hmm. or criminals or single moms mm -hmm. or immigrants or all these unfavored groups that I'm like, hold on. I feel like you don't understand the point here. Like, yes, they will have kids and that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's good. They want kids. Let them have them. Um, I don't see why being a, being a criminal should mean that you forego your right to have the joy of children once you're released, um, once you've paid your debt to society. So, um, uh, um, you know, you definitely have, there's antinatalism on the left um, uh, where you get, you know, for climate reasons or just, you know, cultural reasons opposed to big family or gender equality reasons or whatever. Um, uh, and then you also get some antinatalism on the right. Um, and then you get a version of weak pronatalism that is so weak, it's practically antinatalism, which is, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to oppose every pronatal policy because it might lead to single mothers having babies. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's very common on the right. Um, and it's particularly problematic because you see it among pro-life people. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you have a policy that discourages single women from having children, it doesn't necessarily discourage them from conceiving children. Mm -hmm. 
it just increases abortions. And we have good studies on that. And mm -hmm. so I would argue, uh, if you believe abortion is murder, then you should be including abortions in the murder rate. Um, and, uh, and so what it, what you end up doing is you end up having a trade-off between, um, single parenthood and the murder rate. And you can either choose to have fewer single moms and more murders, um, or uh, fewer murders and more single moms. And I would argue if you believe life is, if you, if you're pro-life, um, if you believe life is valuable, um, you should prefer the more single moms and, and more lives. Um, but in fact, what we see is a lot of conservatives would prefer more abortions. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, um, you know, it's a real, it's a real element of the conservative movement that I think uh, is concerning. And it happens even among people who they don't think of themselves as being pro abortion. They think of themselves as being opposed to single parenthood. Mm -hmm. Um, but in practice, they support policies that are extremely, um, that, that encourage a lot of abortions. All right, on that cheery note, because I promised to get you out of here on a, in a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> um, uh, Limestone, thank you so much for doing this. Hope to have you back soon. Uh, good luck getting around Montreal and uh, congrats on the new baby. Is that two now? That is number two. Excellent. Congrats. That's fantastic. Um, number two of 27. <laughs> Dude, get, get, all i'm saying is if you can if you can if you can get ahead of uh tim carney i'll be impressed um <laughs> what's he at i want to say it's have? i want to say it's only six but every time i look at the pictures it feels like eight for some reason um i think i think, I think brad wilcox has it may be eight yeah that's a good number i mean it's a I'm, big number. yeah i mean i'm 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 you know i'm i'm behind here you know we've got so who knows but my, my wife is from a family of nine, so um, um, I like, you know, big families are good. So anyway, Lyman, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, we hope to have you back pretty soon. My pleasure. All right, so uh, Lyman Stone has left the studio. I, as you can tell, always like talking to Lyman um, on, and, 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 or, or being on the receiving end of his talking. Um, his brain works quickly, which I enjoy. and. Uh, it's probably a lot in there that some people are going to have some disagreements with or whatever. And, um, yeah, there are probably some things I'd have to go back. You know, obviously I, I, as I said, I think his give babies the vote thing was, I think the spirit of it is onto something about how to empower families and all that. But the, uh, the nuts and bolts of it, I think is kind of, problematic and i was not 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 persuaded but i liked reading it and i'm a big i'm i am in favor of those kinds of swing for the fences kinds of articles that allow you to sort of get out of your comfort zone um it's one of the reasons why nr always had a tradition of running weird often wrong pieces of the the conservative case for x variety um uh, we always consider as sort of part of the sort of maintaining the intellectual hygiene of the right because what it would do is it would elicit responses from you know other nr people colleagues you know friends whatever saying well i appreciate you know so-and-so's case for the you know conservative so-called conservative case for uh polyandry um here are the 15 reasons why he's wrong and 
it's a good way to sort of remind people that there are certain closed questions and they're, and they're closed for a reason. Um, and so even when the argument isn't persuasive, it's kind of fun to read, but anyway, that's a total digression. Um, and, uh, other than that, not sure when this airs. So just so you guys know, this was recorded on January 27th, but I don't think it was pegged to any new stuff of any kind. Um, and so we're not going to run it immediately. Um, but it will be immediate when it shows up in your feed. So there's that. Um, so thanks again to him. Thanks again to all of you. Um, oh, I should just say the reason why we're recording this in advance is we want to put some in the can because I have some travel, um, stuff coming up and, um, want to have some flexibility. So anyway, go check out our other podcasts. We've had some great stuff on the dispatch podcasts, um, lately and AO has been, um, you know, for a niche legal podcast has been particularly useful amidst a lot of the Supreme court stuff, including the Stephen Breyer, um, announcement and, you know, the kerfuffle about Gorsuch masks wearing and all that stuff. And, uh, please, if you can become a member of the dispatch, cause that would be really, really good too. Um, in fact, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, we, when we started the dispatch, some of the best advice we got was, you know, focus on building up your audience first and um, everything else becomes easier. And um, if you make your audience, your top, if you make audience growth within the confines of our fairly um, rarefied, you know, philosophy about doing things with integrity and not doing clickbait and whatnot, um, then everything else becomes easier down the line. Um, and I kept thinking about that in the conversation with Lyman because that's sort of my, part of my view about babies. More babies you got, it makes every other problem a little easier. Um, maybe not on the retail level of each individual family, but for a society, babies are good and the rest is commentary. So with that, I will actually leave this conversation. Um, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Babies.